Hello, I'm Alex Colas and I teach politics at Birkbeck College. And I'm Jason Edwards and I also teach politics at Birkbeck College, mainly political theory. We are authors together with a couple of colleagues, uh, Sami Zubaida and Jane Levi, of a new book entitled Food, Politics and Society, with a subtitle Social Theory and the Modern Food System, uh, published by University of California Press. And we're going to be going out to three different places in our neighborhood to try and elaborate a little bit on the contents of the book to give you a flavor of the kinds of concepts we're using to try and explain the contemporary food system. So we're in the Princess Louise, which is an emblematic pub in High Holborn in central London, uh, built uh, in 1872, uh, a pub that's kept a lot of the, the period piece uh, period aspects. It's, uh, it's a beautiful pub. Uh, and Jason, the organization of the space inside tells a bit of a story about the way in which food, uh, or mainly drink, was consumed um, in the, in the, across the 19th century. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization of the space in this, in this particular pub? Yes. So what you find in the Gin Palace as it comes to be, as it evolves through the 19th century, is this division of the space into distinct bars or saloons or, or rooms and they cater to different clientele. But the clientele are defined in terms of primarily class, uh, gender, to an extent age as, as well. And that's quite different to the way in which the interior space of drinking houses was divided before we get to the emergence of the gin palace in the mid to late 19th century. And speaking of gin palaces, we're very close to what is uh, seen to be the, the place uh, where Gin Lane was, uh, William Hogarth's famous print depicting uh, a moral panic, as we call it in the book, in the beginning of the 18th century, uh, where gin replaced brandy and other more indigenous or uh, local sources of of, of drink. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the sort of international politics of it were? Well, you're right, Hogarth's uh, engraving uh, Gin Lane, which is set in St. Giles, which is just around the corner from here, as you say, then is, uh, he, he makes it at the height of what's called the, the gin craze in the 1750s. And it's part of a campaign to try and regulate and indeed prohibit the consumption of gin which has come to be seen as a terrible moral problem and if you look at Hogarth's engraving and perhaps we can put a slide up of it uh, with, with this you can see the articulation of these moral problems in particular in the center of the picture there is a woman a prostitute who is casting her baby over the side of the stairs that leads down to the gin den and the control of the conditions in which people were drinking starts to become important around this time in the first wave of the anti-gin movement in the early 18th century. Prior to that, however, you'd seen a, explosion is probably the wrong word, but you'd seen a very significant increase in the consumption of gin and other spirits because of a distinctly political decision made by the state in the early 18th century. What was that decision? Well, we were going to war with France, revenue was needed to fund the war, and what the government did was to allow farmers to produce grain 
that could then be used to distill strong spirits, something that before had been restricted and prohibited. So the international politics, and particularly the politics of warfare and dynastic struggle in the late 17th and early 18th century, directly relate to the generation of what's perceived of as this moral problem of excessive drinking. And this, this kind of moral panic seems to um, be reproduced or be resonant with today's concerns over excessive drinking. Uh, again, oftentimes there's a focus on uh, young women or young people, although in different countries there seems to be a tendency to uh, reduce in the alcohol intake. Um, what have been the strategies of the state, say, in the 20th century? I mean, we, we, in the book we discuss prohibition as one classic uh, case. Is, that, is, that, is there a sort of uh, prohibition via biopolitics going on in, in, in the 21st century in the UK, say? Yes. But you're seeing different kinds of things going on, and I don't want to get too theory theory here, but part of the, the chapter on the, the gin craze is about how we can think of different regimes of power or technologies of power, as, as, as Foucault called them, and how they influence the regulation of drink uh, through the law, but also very importantly through the shaping of the physical spaces of consumption. So just very briefly, uh, those three technologies of power that Foucault talks about are sovereignty, our discipline, and biopower or biopolitics. And they all attend to different things. So sovereignty, we can think of as being in play at the beginning of the gin craze when the state licenses the production of gin. Then as the moral panic, if we can call it that, over the gin craze emerges, there is a focus on discipline, on taking individual bodies and subjecting them to the discipline of particular kinds of spaces, segregating eventually men from women and people from different classes. And all that is intertwined with some conception of biopolitics as a concern for the health of the population as a whole. So scientific and technological discourses about how drinking affects the body politic, the body as a whole, directly intercede in questions about how drink is regulated and how the space of consumption is designed. We're uh, back again and we're here in a Peruvian restaurant uh, called Piscu on, on Rathbone Place and we're sat here having a nice glass of pisco sour and a little dish of ceviche cheers and we're uh, here to to talk about a uh, a chapter of the book with alex um on the colombian exchange and as we're sat here enjoying this ceviche alex perhaps we can start with that i mean what does what does ceviche tell us about this thing called the colombian exchange um, well, it's quite emblematic because it, it, in the dish are chiles from the Americas on the one hand mm -hmm. and uh, citrus, some kind of lime or citrus-based mm -hmm. fruit on, on the other hand. And neither of these were known to the Americas or the Europeans. They, they didn't mm -hmm. know of each other. In, in other words, the, uh, the citrus was a uh, European em import into the Americas mm -hmm. and the chile was an American export. So this is known mm -hmm. as the... Colombian exchange, mm. uh, which involved uh, a, a massive transfer of goods, mainly mm. um, animals on, on mm -hmm. uh, the Eurasian side onto the Americas. So the Americans, for the first time, encountered pigs and sheep mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. cows and horses. And the rest of the world got from the Americas critical, uh, crucial 
staples like mm-hmm. a potato, uh, like corn, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, not so much staples, but wonderful things like chocolate mm-hmm. or uh, tomatoes, tomatoes and for yeah. those that like it, things mm-hmm. like tobacco. So mm-hmm. that is what is known as the, as the Colombian exchange. And the ceviche is emblematic also because it is by some accounts, a version of a Persian dish mm-hmm. that found its way into the Americas mm-hmm. from uh, ancient Persia, known then as a Sikbaj, mm-hmm. uh, through the European continent, particularly the Iberian Peninsula, mm-hmm. which in, in, is generally known as escabeche. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. cooked with vinegar and mm-hmm. it can involve not just fish, but um, things like, uh, I suppose, rabbit or, or partridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's it was transferred to the Americas in the mm. form of, of ceviche, in the form of the raw fish dish that mm-hmm. we know today. Yeah. So that expresses uh, the the monumental, the uh, world historical transfer of goods. Um, but I think it's very important as well that we bear in mind that that exchange was very uneven, mm-hmm. uh, was quite protracted, mm. was unequal, um, mm. because it was a conquest. So yes. as we've tried to emphasize throughout the book, mm. food and drink are about power mm-hmm. and none more so than than the Colombian exchange that that's very evident that this mm-hmm. was a, a colonial conquest mm-hmm. uh, and therefore a food like ceviche in many ways reflects that particular form mm-hmm. of, of power mm-hmm. yeah and that's um, that's interesting isn't it that we've got this exchange and it's an unequal exchange there's obviously <coughs> one uh, side that's more more powerful but what you're pointing to as well of course is the importance of uh, even in that unequal relationship, hybridity, mm-hmm. uh, the mixing of uh, foods, ingredients, styles of, of, of cooking, and of course, social relations and economic relations to, together. Uh, so can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, how, how important is this notion of hybridity to what's going on in the Colombian exchange? Yeah, I think, as you say, there's, there's, the Colombian exchange shows that fusion food um, was, is not new, certainly to, yeah. to us and in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a distinction to be made between exchanges as such, which have occurred throughout history in different contexts. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we deal with it in the book, right, right from the uh, agricultural revolution, frontier societies, frontier zones, cosmopolitan cities have always had uh, fusion foods, a yes. combination of foods from different parts yeah. of the world. But I guess what uh, was specific to the Colombian exchange was the scale, yeah. that here we're really talking about a global scale of exchange. And mm. for the first time, there being um, produce from one part of the world that was unknown to the other parts mm. of the world combined. Mm-hmm. Um, a good, if, if somewhat random example, is vindaloo, mm-hmm. um, that, that great British dish. Uh, that British dish is uh, it now, yes. <clears throat> well, of course, it has its origins in, in Goa, mm-hmm. in Western India. And is is a, another great example of, of a hybrid dish, uh, binio e alio. If you mm-hmm. want to be get all etymological mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it, um, uh, garlic and, and wine or vinegar, mm-hmm. uh, but which was given its very local inflection in in the uh, flavor flavoring in in the Indian context, but combined mm-hmm. chilies from the Americas with with more local produce. So I think that what the Colombian exchange makes us think about is. Um, to use the Spanish word mestizaje or mm. metisage or mm. um, creole foods and the fact that these are these may have existed in the past but were given a very specific mm. uh, characteristic in the Americas with foodways coming from the African continent, from Europe, from Asia, combining with yeah. local indigenous forms of preparation and produce to generate yeah. really fascinating foodstuffs. The, the other classic, sorry, very quickly, yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is the mole, 
uh, yes. which, which yes. mole poblano, which mm-hmm. uh, has uh, American chilies, turkey, mm-hmm. um, uh, chocolate on the yeah. one hand, and then European imported uh, produce like mm. garlic and um, and onions. Yes, yes. So uh, you know, vindaloo chicken tikka masala, we think of as being in a way quite new and emblematic of new forms of multicultural identity. Uh, but in fact, what we're saying is that you know this this stretches back to this uh, period, 16th century and before, when the Colombian exchange is absolutely starting. And I suppose that can lead us into a, a final sort of big question then, um, which is the significance of the Colombian exchange then for the general trajectory of Western modernity of, of, of capitalism, indeed for the modern modern food system. Mm-hmm. So it's a big question, I know, but but how would you flesh that out a bit? Well, I think the, the Colombian exchange certainly paved the way for what we know today as, as the capitalist food regime. Mm-hmm. But there is a difference. I mean, when the Spaniards arrived and other Europeans conquered the Americas, mm-hmm. uh, they still depended on, uh, on extraction through forced labor, through mm-hmm. slavery, uh, through tribute. So here were societies with markets, as had been the case in the past. Uh, but not market societies, not capitalist societies proper. And I think that the difference is a subtle but important one because um, what we have with the Colombian exchange is indeed these exchanges, but they facilitated what really only developed uh, with industrial capitalism over the last 200 years, and that is the commodification of everything. Yes. Um, the, the, to use the Marxese, the Colombian exchange was a, a process of primitive accumulation, mm-hmm. of a, a process of turning land, labor, mm. the resources, uh, the technology of those societies mm. into commodities. And that took a long time and it was very mm. uneven. But I think we have to trace the origins of the contemporary food system with all its variety, its abundance, its diversity of products, uh, and yet its deep inequalities mm-hmm. to this uh, founding moment in, in the Colombian exchange. Great. That's really interesting, Alex. Thanks very much. We'll finish off the ceviche. One last glass of pisco sour and then let's call it a night. Salud. Salud. Cheers. Chin chin. Can you just say who you are? I'm Sami Zubeda, uh, Emeritus Professor Birkbeck, Search Fellow at uh, SOAS. So we're here at uh, Tom Court Road in central London in a food, a set of food stalls, a food and open air food market, where there's a whole plethora of supposedly national dishes. Baia Mixta on my right, and I think there's some Frankfurters on my left, and there's Thai food and falafel. Uh, it's a true cosmopolitan reflection uh, of our city. And what is, uh, in your view, the, the relationship between globalization and food nationalism? Well, I think uh, what globalization has done is not on, only to spread uh, food items uh, around around the world from one region to many others, but it has also brought about considerable diasporas of uh, in major globalized cities like London or New York or Paris and many others, uh, in which you know there are people settled there from variety of nationalities and within that context not only are they uh, offering their food you know in terms of restaurants and bars and uh, groceries and uh, publications and media generally but they're actually also reinventing their foods 
uh, and you have uh, hummus is is a very good example of this. You know, it's spread hummus is something that comes mostly from the uh, from the Levant, from Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, parts of southern Turkey, um, Cyprus, and so on. It has been spread worldwide, and it's on every supermarket shelf, as well as offered in restaurants and bars. And they're forever inventing uh, new kinds of hummus. Now you come across hummus pesto. Yeah. yeah. What's happening is not only that national foods are being globalized, but within this context, they are being reinvented. Right. In a way, globalization, you said, I think, performs, a, it offers a theater where you... That's right. You know, people are doing, what is your national cuisine? And they are being uh, very inventive. So we're shortly going to go and visit a falafel store from uh, an Iraqi friend. Um, is there a nationality to falafel? Well, Middle East, but I think more specifically, uh, it's really associated with Egypt. Uh, I don't know whether it's possible to determine exactly where it originated, but it's uh, certainly most people in the Middle East did. With Egypt and the parts of Palestine that are contingent, you know, like Gaza. And I remember, I grew up in Baghdad, and I remember as a boy in the early 1950s, uh, coming across Falafel for the first time in street uh, cellars Palestinians. Yeah. And that was that was new to Baghdad at that time. So even in Iraq, Falafel didn't think they brought there with one of the traffic scorers of the Palestinians. Yes. And, and in, in the chapters on identity and nationalism, there's uh, a real emphasis on ecologies determining food, patterns for food habits rather than uh, the artificial lines of nation states. It seems to apply also, however, to the notion of the Mediterranean diet. I mean, you, you say, uh, or we say in the book, that the Mediterranean diet is, is, uh, is a bit of a myth. Well, certainly the olive is common to the Mediterranean, but the use of the olive and the use of olive oil varies greatly. So in fact, Anatolia, the coast, Anatolia, Syria, Lebanon, etc. For the most part, these parts did not use olive oil so much for cooking or for food, except for the Christian communities and perhaps the Jewish communities there, which had olive oil for their fasting. Olive oil was used primarily to make soap and for lighting, rather than the preferred medium for cooking. Uh, was always, for those who could afford it, clarified butter, uh, or those who couldn't afford it, rendered sheep fat, yeah. uh, lard. And when you look at the parts of the French uh, South Mediterranean area, they also used goose and duck fat. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful yeah. stuff. Yeah.